Hello and welcome to More Than Politics, a podcast for those of us who want something more than what we've come to expect from politics and from our political discourse. My name is Julie Varner-Walsh. I'm your host. I'm coming to you today with a pretty different kind of episode from the ones I normally give you. I am sitting here a little bit past midnight on January 7th, just hours after the U.S. Capitol was stormed by protesters, by supporters of President Trump. I am by myself. I don't have a guest on this episode. You just have me. And I'm here to give you my reaction to what happened yesterday. I'm also here to give you my reaction to what happened in the election itself and in the days since that election. My plan is to release this episode pretty soon after I record it, not to edit it heavily, so I hope you'll forgive any little mistakes I make, any poor quality here in this episode. I thought it was important that I just get it out and not sit on it forever. Um, Because I've been sitting on the election, to be honest. I have not been here in a while in your feed. At the uh, end of November, I told you I'd be back in a week, (laughs) that I was going to take a week-long break, and that turned into well over a month. So um, part of my delay was logistical. I have five little kids at home, and it was just too much for me to manage them and virtual learning and Christmas preparations and the podcast. Um, But the other part really was almost being heartsick over what was happening in the wake of the election and not knowing how to handle it here on the podcast and having so much to say that I could hardly start. I didn't know where to start because there was just too much to wrestle with. So for weeks now, I have been taking notes. I have written pages and pages of notes on things that I want to say regarding what happened in the election and what's happened since. So I promise not to read you that many pages of notes, but I am going to cover more in this episode than just what happened on the 6th. But to start with the 6th, I want to back up actually quite a bit. In early September of 2001, I was about a month into my first job out of college. I was working for the federal government in a block of mostly federal offices in Crystal City, Virginia, just pretty much right next to the Pentagon. And often on my way home from work, I would stop at Union Station and put my things in a little locker there and go on a walk. And I would take a nice vigorous walk around the Capitol grounds. I am from a pretty rural area and it was hard for me to have moved to Washington and to have been in a big city. And it was such a a relief for me to be on the Capitol grounds, which are green and beautiful. And um, I guess they reminded me a little of home, even if I was in the middle of the city. At any rate, I would walk around the Capitol grounds and just feel 
grateful to be there. I mean, looking at the beautiful buildings surrounded by so much history and beautiful architecture and important happenings. Even if I wasn't working in the building, I was just enjoying being in its presence. Um, this is early September. So this is before the 11th. And at that time, you could walk right up the steps of the Capitol and you could walk right around, uh, right around it, right up close. And it was just delightful. You know, you felt like I'm an American citizen. This is, this is one of my buildings. And, um, and at this point, that memory seems precious and quaint to me. Because of course, days later, when our country was attacked on September 11th, everything changed. And it was pretty obvious to me that everything had changed that day. I smelled the smoke. I saw the Pentagon. I saw all the, the steam and the smoke rise up above it. I saw police officers pour into the streets. I saw cars staying in the same spot for hours, not able to move. Um, it was pretty traumatic, as it was for so many people that day. But perhaps it was a little more traumatic for those of us who were nearby. At any rate, after that day, I could no longer go on those close-up walks on the Capitol grounds. They closed them off. You could go on the grass, but you couldn't go up close like you could before, not up on the stairs. And even being on the grounds was different. Suddenly, everywhere you looked, you wondered whether there might be a terrorist plotting another attack. It was stressful. I stopped taking walks there. It was just too much. Years later, I was working in Annapolis, which had also changed after September 11th. They put in the security protocols. It was a lot more strict than when I had been there previous to September 11th. And, um, you know, after September 11th, it's cliche to say, but everything changed and suddenly everyone became more aware of our vulnerable our vulnerabilities. So sometimes I would sit in Annapolis in the State House looking down at the Senate or the House of Delegates, and I would sit on the balcony watching over the proceedings on the floor, and I would think about what would happen if a terrorist came in, and I would think about how vulnerable those legislators were, and I would think about how vulnerable the rest of us were in the building, even though there were some metal detectors at the door. But that was before, and those were vestiges of the trauma of September 11th. They were in the back of my head, but they still didn't quite feel real. Now, after January 6th, 2021, we live in a different world. Now we live in a country where that kind of thing can happen. Where a mob can storm a legislative building and disrupt the constitutional duty of its elected bodies. That is un.
real. Unreal. That's been my reaction all day. This is unreal. This should not be happening in this country. We should not live in a country where a presidential candidate refuses to concede that he lost. We should not live in a country where a president would sell a fantasy to his followers of a rigged election. We should not live in a country where two weeks before an inauguration, the sitting president sends his followers from a rally at which he spoke up the street toward the Capitol and tells them not to be weak. We should not live in a country where that mob climbs up the Capitol, breaking windows, bursting into the building, climbing onto the floor of the legislative chambers, forcing U.S. representatives and senators to run for cover. This is unreal. It is unacceptable, and I hope it will serve as a wake-up call. I hope that this event will be clarifying. I hope that it will serve as a stripping away of our attachments, our blinders, of the fog that has somehow settled onto our politics in this day and age that has prevented us from seeing the bigger picture. I hope this event will awaken us to what we have to lose. We treat our democracy like it's unbreakable. We treat it like it's cheap. We take it for granted. But if, for the first time since the British invaded in 1812, if for the first time since then, we see a mob breach the Capitol building, invade it, if that has happened, what else can happen? What could be next? We can't treat this like it's nothing. Our democracy is too important. All right, I'm sure there are a million more things that could be said about what happened yesterday, but I'm going to just say three of those things and then move on to the rest of my election talk. The first thing, which I found just maddening as I was watching the footage of what was happening at the Capitol, is I was thinking, what is this telling our enemies? I mean, on a, on a broad scale, what is it telling our enemies and our adversaries across the world about the health of our democracy? That's certainly not good. But on even a more specific level, I mean, maybe it's because I came of age with September 11th, but the, I just kept thinking, well, this is showing the terrorists exactly what to do. <laughs> like, it's just absurd that our capital should, could be so easily gotten into. Again, it's just unreal. With all the security measures that have taken place in the past almost 20 years, this should not have been possible. 
And the fact that it was possible sends a real message to our enemies about how vulnerable our major buildings are, let alone those that aren't so major. Second, and I am far from alone in observing this, (laughs) um, it will have been old hat, I'm sure, even by the morning, but I just couldn't help but look at this crowd and think, with all the criticism that the protests and riots over the summer got in the wake of George Floyd, they didn't storm the Capitol building. I mean, this is an entirely other level. And yet, it was treated more lightly. I mean, the president ultimately recorded a short video asking people to leave. But in that video, he very gently asks people to go home, and he says, you are very special. So when the Black Lives Matter protesters were protesting in Lafayette Square, President Trump orders them to be moved out, tear gas is used, people are pushed away, the park is cleared so that the president can walk through it to make a political statement in front of the church. But in this situation, where people have literally invaded the Capitol building, he tells them they're special. It is unreal. You simply could not make this up if you tried. And I hope all of us will remember this going forward. The next time we see people marching for racial justice, marching after literally hundreds of years of injustice done to people of color in our country, I think that we need to show them a little more grace. Because if these people who are upset at the lies they have been told by the president, if these people get to take that anger and channel it into attacking the Capitol, then surely people who are angry at hundreds of years of abuse and injustice, surely they get to be angry too. All right, the last thing I have to say about yesterday's events is that I think they are going to have a major political impact. I think that this event is going to be the nail in the coffin of President Trump's reputation. I think that he might not know it yet, but he has just been dealt a serious blow in what political power he had left. Because he still had quite a bit, actually. Even though he only had a couple weeks left in the presidency, he has quite a lot of support in the Republican Party, and he has a very dedicated base. And I'm sure for the most dedicated of his followers, yesterday's events won't have changed a thing. But for a lot of people, a lot of people will have seen what happened yesterday and gotten scared. And a lot of people will 
think that they can be better served by someone other than President Trump. A lot of people are going to want to move past this embarrassing situation, move forward, and I think that President Trump and anyone who clings to him are going to be left behind. Before yesterday, I didn't. I wouldn't have said that. Before yesterday, I thought that Trump would have a major, major influence in the Republican Party for a long time coming. But I think what happened yesterday might just have broken something. I think he has sped his fall from grace, sped his fall from power, and I think he will be a much less potent adversary than he was even a couple of days ago. I think that the senators and congressmen who have so closely tied themselves to yesterday's effort to deny electors from the close states, I think they will pay for that. Senator Cruz, Senator Hawley, the other four senators who voted with them, and the congressman who did the same, I think their stars are falling. All right, now let's shift gears. I am something of a slow thinker and a slow talker, so we had a very slow start to this podcast, (laughs) but now I'm getting to the point where I have written lots of notes on what's happened since the election, so hopefully I can speed things up a bit. All right, as I see it, there were two main lessons to take away from the election. The first is that this country really is divided, and that this was true even in a high turnout election. There's this long-standing idea in American politics that Republicans vote at a higher rate than Democrats, so high turnout elections should favor Democrats. Because the Republicans are already voting at high rates, bringing out more voters must necessarily mean bringing out more Democrats. But the 2020 election challenged that notion because both parties benefited from the higher turnout. Yes, lots more Democratic voters turned out than usual, but lots more Republican voters turned out too, making, one, the presidential race closer than most politics watchers expected, two, the House of Representatives closer than pretty much anyone expected, and three, the balance of power in the Senate in question as opposed to being a sort of easy-ish pickup for the Democrats, which many expected. Republican voters who were surprised at all the votes Biden got, but not surprised at the votes Trump got in this high-turnout election, have either not been paying attention to politics for very long or have been living in a bubble. The surprise in this high-turnout election is not that the Democrats got a lot of the new votes, it's that the Republicans did too. Maybe it shouldn't be a revelation to note that our country is divided. Everyone knows that, right? But extreme partisans often don't think that way. Perhaps because they're more likely to be surrounded by people who think like they do, perhaps because hope springs eternal, both extremes tend to think that there's some hidden majority that's on their side. But when turnout is high, the truth is more easily seen. 
There is no majority to be hidden. There is, in reality, a tightly divided electorate, which will sometimes generate wins on the right, sometimes on the left. So no, the country is definitely not as far right as diehard Republicans would hope. Biden's victory makes that clear. But, and here's my number two lesson, the country is also definitely not as far left as the Sanders wing of the Democratic Party would hope. Left-leaning Democrats have long had the sense that there was this untapped majority, or if not majority, perhaps an impressive plurality, of voters out there who were ideologically aligned with them but not motivated to vote. They reasoned that if they could just advance a left-enough candidate, say Sanders or Warren, they'd excite all those millions of disenchanted non-voters and win with their help. The 2020 election gave the lie to this in two ways. First, regarding what I said a moment ago, this high turnout election did not disproportionately help the Democratic presidential candidate and didn't seem to help congressional Democrats at all. Left-wing candidates just don't get credit for winning left-wing districts. And two, the Republican Party seems to be increasingly capturing a working-class vote that was once seen as the natural constituency of Democratic politicians. It's even seeing an increase in minority voters. Perhaps even populist-leaning working-class voters are wary of policy talk that smacks of socialism. Democrats always seem to think voters will make decisions based upon their potential economic advantage. Like, think about farmers, who people thought would surely turn against President Trump once his trade policies affected them badly enough. Democrats persistently overlook ideological motives for supporting or opposing candidates. As much as younger voters might be intrigued by politicians who flirt with socialism, Enough middle to older Americans still fear the concept enough to make such talk dangerous in all but the most liberal circles. Given the incredibly high turnout in this election, I think it's plain that Joe Biden is one of the only Democrats in this moment who could have defeated Donald Trump. Any leftist candidate would have been soundly defeated. Any small pickup in leftist voters would be dwarfed by moderates who voted for Joe because he was Joe and would have voted for Trump rather than a Warren or a Sanders. So let's talk in more detail about the parties and the roles they're playing in this situation today. First, let me note that we can think of three competing axes on which to arrange elected officials and other political folks. There's the axis of ideology from left to right, the axis of commitment to a political party, and the axis of commitment to the candidate. As I see it, there are two broad segments of the Democratic Party. There's the far left, and then there are the centrists, or the institutionalists, which are not necessarily the same thing, but I think they're currently in the same group. Institutionalists can have varying degrees of centrism. Some may be actually more liberal than others, but what marks them is that they're committed to the institution and they're committed to the party. And I see three broad segments of the Republican Party. There are the Trumpists, people who are 
strong base supporters of President Trump. They have more loyalty to him than they do to the party or possibly even to political ideals. There are also the institutionalists. They are not necessarily committed to Trumpism, but they're willing to play along with it to advance their own interests and that of the party. And the third are never Trumpers, who are probably a very tiny sliver of the total Republican population. But these are people who are more committed to ideology and not at all committed to President Trump. Now I'm going to go through each of those segments and say how I think they're playing into the current situation. On the far left, I think you see people who had been hopeful before the election that they would see their power in the party rise, that they would get um, enough support that the party would deem it important to reward them in office. And given that the House Democrats did as poorly as they did in the election, I think that wish has just gone right out the window. So while I think it's important to Biden that he try to hold his coalition together, and I think he will make some um, concessions to the left, I think they have far less power within the party than they did even before the election. The centrists or institutionalists in the Democratic Party, however, I think are ascendant, and I think they are going to have a big and important impact on the Biden administration. As for the Trumpists, a few days ago I would have told you that they were to have the bulk of the power for the foreseeable future, but I really think that yesterday's events have shifted something, and I think that they will find themselves with far less power in the party than they expected. The institutionalists have sort of been hanging on. I think that they have thought they needed to appease Trump's base in order to have any power and in order to avoid primaries coming from the right. But I'm sure in the wake of what happened yesterday, they are going to be reassessing, trying to figure out where they lie in the new balance of power and how they should conduct themselves when it comes to President Trump and his legacy. The never-Trumpers have been pretty pleased since Biden's election, seeing this potential ascendancy of the center, and of course, glad to be done with Trump as president. Um, I think that the centrists, both in the Democratic Party and more serious, committed centrists in the Republican Party, including Never Trumpers, I think that they could really prove to be vital in the next administration. Okay, before any more talk about prospects for moving forward, I just wanted to say a little bit more about the few months since the election and the fraud allegations made by President Trump. Of course, they are baseless. 
They have been an important tool for garnering support and attention and a whole heck of a lot of donations from devoted Trump supporters. But they have not borne out. There have been nearly 60 cases brought to the courts to protest the election. Very few have made it very far because they have been without merit. I have been demoralized through all of the Trump presidency to see the tenuous relationship with the truth that the president has and which therefore many of his supporters do too. But we must deal in reality. We must value the truth. And the truth is, like him or not, Joe Biden has been elected our next president. The truth is, despite all their wild claims of fraud, Trump's lawyers have presented few to none of them in court where they're legally held responsible for their claims. No, they present them to us, to whom they feel no responsibility. Official Republicans likely don't believe most of these fraud allegations. They're entertaining them because their base wants them to. So who's responsible for this situation? I think the first responsibility goes first to those who obfuscate, who confuse the very idea of truth. But next, I think the responsibility goes to the base to people who allow themselves to be used, who suspend critical thinking here when they so loudly apply it to the mainstream media, and who hold Republican officials hostage. Also, importantly, the Republican officials, of course, are responsible too. They should know better, but they have allowed themselves to be held hostage. They're fearful of their voters. They don't lead. They only follow. For many, if not most, Republicans, sadly, this all boils down to the culture wars. My side is more important than anything else. More important than facts, than truth, than integrity. Nothing matters except the success of my side. What a dangerous place for a democracy to land. All right, back to the election itself. How did I feel personally once I realized that Biden had been elected president? I felt relief. I've long wanted someone with a depth of congressional experience to lead as president. This was one reason I wanted McCain in 2008. I thought it was time for a president who really knew how to work with others. We had just come off of a long string of presidents who had come of political age elsewhere. Carter, Reagan, Clinton, and Bush, the younger, were all governors. Bush, the elder, was a congressman, but only for four years. He spent the bulk of his career in governmental posts that gave him experience and insight, but not necessarily in the bald push and pull of political compromise. When we instead got Obama, we got someone with less than four years' experience in the U.S. Senate. 
Besides my policy disagreements with Obama, my biggest regret was his lack of experience. I felt like we'd chosen a good orator over a good co-worker, one who could truly work with others to accomplish his goals. And that first regret was confirmed by watching Obama's performance in office. He failed on that count. I remember him talking about compromise and working across the aisle, but to him that seemed to mean, do exactly what I want and we'll call it compromise. His famous elections have consequences quote from soon after his inauguration in a meeting with congressional Republicans. And then Republicans succeeded in making everything as difficult as possible for him and later threw the comment back in his face. And we progressed further down the road toward a near hopeless political division. In 2012, we were at least offered a political moderate, if not that depth of congressional experience but we weren't interested. In 2016, our choice was between two extremes, a politically entrenched, extremely divisive liberal and a populist, right-seeking political novice. We sort of threw up our arms with a massive, oh well, and chose the unknown. The result has been a mad dash down that steep road of division toward political mayhem. But at this point, we once again get a chance of benefiting from a depth of congressional experience. It's been a long time. Not since Gerald Ford have we had a president that came of political age in Congress. And by now, perhaps, we need that depth to be extra long to stretch back to a time when the two sides actually worked together, actually befriended one another. Now many of members of Congress only know this deep, almost absolute division. Back in 2016, I assumed that Trump would do his job as president poorly. I assumed he would do it bombastically and selfishly and untruthfully. I did not think he would change. I thought he had made very clear to us who he was and he would be exactly that person in office. I did not think the gravitas of the office would change him at all. I assumed that the Republican Party would try to bend him to their will, but I also assumed they would not succeed. I assumed, honestly, that a Trump presidency would break the Republican Party. And that's one of the reasons I opposed him in 2016. See, I'm a lifelong Republican. I care about the party. I want it to succeed. I want it to be healthy. I want it to do good. I did not want it to implode. But now, what do I assume now? A few days ago, I assumed the party was done for. I assumed it would either tear itself apart or follow Trump off of a cliff. Today, things might look a little different. It still might tear itself apart. But I don't think it will wholesale follow Trump off a cliff. I think the more interesting question, honestly, is what Biden does. I think that Biden has great opportunity here. 
the Congress is so evenly split that he has some cover to stay in the center. And I think if he takes advantage of his comfort in the center, and I think if a small number of centrist congressmen and senators commit themselves to working across the aisle to advance a centrist agenda, I think there could actually be some improvement. We have been operating for years under this system in the Senate in which the Republican majority leader required that a majority of its Republican caucus support anything that was to be passed. But the majority of the majority is not the same thing as the majority, if that makes any sense. There are surely a number of issues that could find common ground among both Democrats and Republicans. But if it didn't capture the bulk of the Republicans, it was off the table. With more power given to the centrists in Congress, and possibly not having a rule like that guide the Senate, we could actually see a lot more get done. We could see more cooperation. Perhaps we could see a little bit of health injected into the institution. A close Congress can be an opportunity, but the left needs to learn the lesson I talked about earlier about the country not being as far left as it wants. And the right needs to learn to see outside itself, to think of something a little bigger than its own electoral advantage. It has been blinded to pretty much anything but that for at least a couple of decades. Regarding the parties themselves, we could be in for a shift. It's possible that the Republican Party continues its growth in the working classes, that it becomes sort of the new blue-collar party, especially as the Democratic Party is characterized more by the growth in the suburbs, the educated elite. But it's also possible that Trump was an aberration, and that as he leaves, you will see the party try to regain the voters it lost in 2020. But I think that any guess as to how this will all play out is at this point very premature, given what happened yesterday. Politics is essentially about working with people you disagree with in order to achieve your goals as well as you can so that you can govern as you see fit. It is necessarily collaborative. It requires work. To do it well, you need people who are willing to work across the aisle. People who are willing to get to know one another. People who are willing to see past political labels. Once when I was working in Annapolis, I was testifying before a House committee when one of the delegates 
who had obviously just learned about my family background, piped up to tell me about my grandfather. My very Republican grandfather. This delegate was a Democrat. And he said in front of the whole committee during this hearing that he didn't agree with my grandfather on a lot of things, but he sure did like him and how good he was to work with. If anything good can come out of what happened yesterday at the Capitol, I hope it will be an opening up that allows that kind of a conversation. I hope that somehow the congressmen and senators who yesterday had to hide as the building was being stormed, I hope that they will have learned to see each other a little better, to get to know one another, to try to work with one another, to come to respect one another, for their sake, but also for the sake of our country. Thank you for listening to this episode of More Than Politics, this different kind of episode of More Than Politics. I'll be back in your feed soon with some more typical episodes where I'm talking with guests on a variety of issues that relate to politics but hopefully mean something a little bit more. My name is Julie Varner-Walsh. I'm your host. You can learn more about me at my blog, www.thesewallsblog.com, and you can follow me on Instagram at Julie V. Walsh and Facebook at More Than Politics Podcast. This podcast's theme music is by purple-planet.com.